0: Hello, and welcome to Ditching Hourly. I'm Jonathan Stark. On today's show, I'm joined by Blair Ens. Blair is a 25-year veteran of the business side of the creative professions. In 2002, he launched Win Without Pitching, which has worked with thousands of creative professionals in numerous countries through direct engagements, seminars, workshops, and webcasts. Blair's the author of The Win Without Pitching Manifesto and the forthcoming Pricing Creativity, A Guide to Profit Beyond the Billable Hour. Without further ado, here's my interview with Blair Anz enjoy. Blair welcome to the show.
1: Thank you Jonathan my pleasure to be here.
0: I am super excited to talk with you today especially about your new book Pricing Creativity. Could you start off by giving listeners a little bit of context about you know what the book is meant to do for its readers who it's targeted at what led you to write it just sort of the big picture.
1: Yeah so my business is Win Without Pitching. It's uh, sales training for creative professionals. We work with independent, um, typically owners of independent creative firms of various types, usually design or advertising based, but often going into the kind of adjacent markets. Um, and their teams, and we we help them get better at selling what it is that they do. And, you know, there's some um, right there in the name, Win Without Pitching, there's some ideas around the conventions that we help to challenge so um pricing creativity is a uh, is meant um it's meant to be a a desk reference a, a, an enjoyable read, readable reference mat, manual for anybody in the creative pref- professions who sets
0: negotiates or delivers price. Excellent. Well that's right up our alley here. <laughs> so we have uh, had similar paths over the years. Uh, we've read a lot of the same people. I know Ellen Weiss is big on your list, Ron Baker, uh, many, many others. I think we probably have the same set of 20 pricing books on our bookshelf. Yeah, probably. And also we both have spent at least a decade. I think you probably have at least two decades of actually implementing this stuff or experience in a field that you're now implementing these theories in uh, actually converting them into practice. So, it's going to be, it sort of comes as no surprise to me that we have lots and lots and lots of kind of like shared, um, I don't want to say revelations, but it it, it just like, you know, wow, this stuff does work. Uh, It is tricky to implement and it takes some doing. There's a, you know, perhaps more art than science at some points, Mm -hmm. Um, but it definitely works. And Largely, in my case, I'm super anti hourly billing. In case you couldn't tell by the show title, <laughs> uh, but I know that you do some you do talk about some types of of hourly. And for your target market, you know, for for people who are making payroll and they've got a bunch of bodies that uh, that you know are they have a lot of capacity, I should say. It, it does make sense to perhaps sell blocks of time. I kind of want to talk about that at some point. Maybe we don't have to drill into that now, but the you have this great framework called the four phases of client engagement that talks about this sort of like decreasing value curve as you come down the uh, as you come down from the sort of discovery phase, or I think you call it diagnostic phase. And the and that moves into recommendations. Maybe you could talk about the four phases just briefly because people uh, listeners are familiar with this concept. I've talked about you before.
1: Yeah. So uh, the four phases in any engagement of any any expertise based business would be diagnose where you come to understand the client situation. Prescribe, where you prescribe a therapy, if we wanted to use continue with a medical analogy. Uh, The deliverables at the diagnose phase would be diagnostic findings. The deliverables at the prescribe phase would be a strategy. And then you have uh, what I call the apply phase or the initial application of therapy. And then you have ongoing application of uh, ongoing reapplication of therapy. So diagnose, prescribe, apply, reapply. And the highest value offering that you have is first and foremost, your ability to accurately diagnose the client's challenges, assess the scene as it were. And from there, if you're, if you're not able to diagnose properly, then it doesn't matter how good your prescription is. If it's not, if it's not targeted to the, the challenge that's, that's really there. So, Mm -hmm. um, then when you get into reapplication. Excuse me. You get into the fourth phase of reapplication. That's the highly commoditized stuff of, of redoing things over and over again, where you're adding very little value. It's mostly you're you're getting paid for things that you do with your, your hands and your feet, mostly your hands, a little bit of your brain still. But I do like to break those four phases of the engagement into two separate categories. I refer to the first two, diagnose and prescribe as the thinking stages or phases. And then the uh, latter two, apply and reapply, are the doing phases. So, y- your point is, it, you know, as as um, the highest value offering that you have is is in the the thinking. I call them stages, the the thinking stages, and then once you get into doing, that tends to be more commoditized. So, I think from time to time it makes sense to package up a whole lot of that doing. Um, sometimes it does make sense to, to sell that as units of time. It really depends on the business. It really depends on how you sold the previous um, stages of the engagement. Uh, it depends on how your business is set up, how your clients' businesses are set up. So I really do like the I like the idealism of value-based pricing. I mean, Ron Baker, who I'm sure we're going to talk about is, has been a tremendous influence on my thinking on value-based pricing. And he read an advanced copy of the book, um, as did you. And he had some really good feedback for me. And, and one one of his points of feedback where I had to say, well, I, I think we're just going to have to disagree on this one is he's just adamant that at no point should you ever sell time. I like the idealism of that. I think practically there are times when it makes sense to sell time. And and uh, one of those times might be when you're selling that fourth uh, phase the re- ongoing reapplication work, and it's just a whole bunch of busy work. It might make sense to sell that in units of time.
0: Right. And I, I think you, I think you, I see this as well. I tend to tackle it in a little bit different way. Uh, but again, I think this is because of different audience, audiences. So, you know, there are people who listen to this show who are not just developers, and there are, you know, there are firm owners, developer, and other types. And I see the the thing with the implementation phase specifically. I, I call it implementation phase or the yep. build phase. The, the, usually, the the first time you build a new piece of software, it's like a build phase, and that's what most software developers sell mm-hmm. is the build phase, and they give away the first two phases for free to try to land the deal, or or as a first step in, in before they start building. But they just sort of build themselves out at the at a, the normal build hourly rate. Uh, because they would never even occur to them to charge for those most valuable pieces. I, I suppose the the way to look at it is if you already have a lot of capacity in your firm and you you just have a lot of employees, you know, you've got like 10, 200, you know, uh, call them junior devs or or whatever you want to call them. Um, you know, you you need to have a sufficient cash flow to cover their payroll or if they're contractors, their expectations, you know, financial expectations of the relationship. And I do, you know, from a pragmatic standpoint, say, look, if you have to, if you've got these people and you've made these promises, then fine, sell implementation. And if you have to sell it by the hour, then sell it by the hour, if that's what you need to keep the lights on. But I see it as something, my general advice is to be moving away from that kind of work and to grow your firm instead of by, uh, increasing the number of hands on deck to do that kind of busy work in those later phases to uh, instead not hire, not grow by hiring, but grow by increasing your profits and trying to always be moving, is This I call it increasing the altitude of engagement. So trying to move farther up the chain of command uh, at the client, You know, working with people who are farther up the chain of command in order to do more strategic types of engagements that are higher value. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I I agree with that. And I think, you know, I can see the, I can see the point opposite to mine. I can see you, know, you and, and Ron making the point that, you know, as soon as you put this on the table, Blair, you kind of give people the invitation to do, to do, go back to hourly because hourly is the easy thing to do, right? That's, that's why we do it. And We we can rationalize it. We can cover it up and make tell ourselves other stories about other reasons why we do it. It's just easier to price based on inputs. It's easier. um, The conversations are so much easier. You have something you can point to, and I think of the few different places where it would make sense to sell time. The idea. I don't. I'm not suggesting that you know all of your engagements of the kind of the more rote implementation or what I call the reapplication work should be packaged up and bundled as as time. I think. I think there are better examples, Um, and it's interesting, You know, one of the perspectives I hoped to bring to the subject matter is I'm a sales trainer first. I run a sales training organization for creative professionals, so um, it's occurred to me that I I met a lot of creative professionals who are familiar with the theory of value-based pricing, but very few of them who actually do it, and the reason that it falls short is the conversations are hard, the sales part of it, the interaction with the human beings that's the hard part. Um, and so as soon as I, I recognize that as soon as I open the door and say, well, okay, value-based pricing is the way to go, but it, you know, from time to time it does make sense to sell time. I'm I'm going to enable a whole bunch of bad behavior. But there are better times. Like an example of um You know, selling excess capacity. So when you're when you're out there selling, actively looking for new clients for your organization, you're looking for a small number of clients at a certain size. And so many firms forget about the at a certain size. And there's some math that most firms should be able to do on this. So you know that it doesn't make sense to take a client under the size of X. So let's say you're out there hunting for clients the size of X or greater, and along comes something that's maybe like an L or whatever. It's, a, it's 0.3X. So you might um, – and you know X should be like, – your starting point for figuring out what X should be is 10% of your fee income target for the year. That's your starting point for figuring it out. So if you're a million-dollar shop – you should be looking for clients who spend about $100,000 with you over the course of a year. If you're a $10 million shop, you're looking for million-dollar clients. So let's say you're you're a million-dollar shop and you're looking for $100,000 clients and you uncover somebody who says, well, I have a $25,000 project. You should not pursue project work in in a customized services firm where you have... Uh, capacity constraints. There are only so many clients you can work with. It, invariably, you're going to uncover project project work from time to time. And when it makes sense to take on project work, like $25,000 when you're pursuing $100,000 longer engagements, is when you have excess capacity. When it makes sense to sell time, in this case, is when you have a price buyer, somebody who's really price sensitive, somebody you wouldn't normally do business with, you're looking for more value buyers, right so you can price based on value so it's not it's somebody you wouldn't normally do business with but it's a one-off project you can price it um, to uh, in a way that you it can be profitable for you and so you're essentially using excess capacity and then you you just have to make sure you do a couple of things number one is you price in you sell blocks of time and it might be a ten thousand dollar block of time it might be twenty thousand it might be it might be all twenty five thousand dollar block of time. In this example, and you don't open yourself up to an hourly billing engagement. So number one, you sell a block of time and that block doesn't even necessarily have to measure up with exactly what the client's budget is. So we can get into some nuance there. And number two, you want to make sure you strip all of the excess value out. So. So things like access to senior people, reporting, et cetera, et cetera, maybe even project management, right? Like your full-on project management, you might be able to strip that out. So the ideal scenario where I think it makes sense to think about selling time is when you have excess capacity and you're dealing with a price buyer who has a project. And you can, uh, if you think you can frame an engagement where I'll sell this block of time, there's no guarantee on deliverables. When the unit of time is up, it's up. If we're not finished, you need to buy another block of time. In this case, blocks might be 10,000, 20,000, 25,000. And you don't get to buy an extra five hours, you've got to buy an extra uh, $10,000 worth of time. It makes sense to consider situations like that.
0: Right. So I, I do not disagree with that. It's very, very pragmatic. So this, this is the kind of uh, application of value theory. It's not even, it's not even really, we're not even talking about value pricing here, but it's, it's a pricing uh, approach that's super pragmatic based, you know, in in the real world, sometimes you need to take on clients who maybe you would rather not, or or not a good fit, or maybe have some red flags, but Hey, you got to make payroll, you need the money, how are you going to price it and there are a couple of things you pointed out there that i think are non trivial um, first not selling onesie twosie hours you're selling blocks in advance not in arrears right you're not like you're not saying like okay here's the here's the invoice for all the hours it's like no you you, you know buy a 10,000 dollar block and we'll get going so i think that's super important uh, the other thing is to is, is to recognize that it's for the doing work, and it's not for the thinking work. And the thinking work would be something that you would price separately outside of the hourly uh, hourly block model.
1: Absolutely, not, nothing com- commoditizes thinking
0: work faster than selling it in units of doing. <laughs> exactly. So another another thing that uh, that is important to recognize is that moving from what you and probably the rest of the world, dear listener, are used to doing, billing for your time by the hour, uh, is a slow process. It's not the kind of thing you can do overnight. And the, the approach that Blair just described is a perfectly reasonable transition step to you know, keep you from going out of business while you're learning how to work this nuclear bomb you know, of value <laughs> pricing, you know, it's, it's very powerful. And it, it, you know, this rocket can take you to the moon, but it's really, really easy to get wrong. The first 10 or 20 times. Yeah. Uh, it's almost a strategic use of uh, trading time for money that I think make, makes good sense as a transition step, at least.
1: Yeah. And in this case, we're, t- we're probably talking about one person keeping one timesheet for a week or two. All right, let's. So, so that's
0: that's probably an area where may, maybe we differ a little bit, but um... yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I wouldn't call it different. I just think it's. I just think there's some nuances there that are important. Yeah. But you you mentioned a, a word that I would love to loop back to, which is commoditized, and the 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 first thing in your book that blew my head open was uh, a passage that I'd I'd actually like to read if that's okay.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, so the section is called. Producer or marketer, which are you? And this this is sort of the concluding paragraph, so I'll let you expand on it. But the concluding paragraph is, uh, and now we arrive at a fundamental issue of pricing creativity. You can have a culture of efficiency or one of customer innovation, a.k.a. value creation, but not both. You have to decide, are you going to be a producer focused on efficiencies or are you going to be a marketer focused on value creation? i 've never seen this articulated so clearly, and I'd love it if you could kind of kind of pull that apart for people
1: yeah and i'm i 'm not, not going to take credit for it I mean it was uh first time I read something like that was Ron Baker um in his book Pricing on Purpose, and then again in his second book implementing value pricing and he's he himself is quoting um, Peter Drucker, the great uh, author and father of management consulting. And, um, but I don't, uh, I don't quite identify with the words, um, that Drucker used. He used the words, um, effectiveness and efficiency. So he has them at, at the opposite end of the spectrum. And I think effectiveness is kind of a nice, it's alliteration. It's a nice play on the word efficiencies, but, but when you think about it, uh, it's pretty clear, you don't have to spend too long, too much time thinking about it. It's pretty clear that. All firms exist on this continuum of efficiencies on one end, and usually efficiency-driven firms are firms that are working towards op- optimizing their all of the available hours. So bi- billable efficiency, right? So the number of billable hours available, um, what percentage of those across the firm are you billing? And there's some billable efficiency targets that are put up by consultants like my friend David C. Baker, Recourses, and others. So um all firms exist on the spectrum with efficiency, the pursuit of efficiency at one end of the scale and at the other end of the scale is um innovation or delivering client value. And you think, well, if if you're an efficient, if you're a, a firm that's focused on efficiencies right now, you're probably bristling at that. You're thinking, well, we're we're not come on, we're we're not giving up. Uh, innovation when we pursue efficiencies, but absolutely you are because um, innovation, the creation of customer value, innovate, uh, these are essentially the same things, not, but they're close enough for our conversation. They, they, uh, they require waste, right? They're hugely inefficient. Innovation is hugely inefficient. and it requires time and space to be able to think, try things on, discard things, try something radical. Not just time and space it requires money, right? So you need to charge enough that um, you've got all kinds of time and space to put your feet up on the desk or and think or to experiment and iterate, et etc. And when you are estimating how many hours it's going to take you to do something, you're really confining your people and putting them in that hour box and you're removing by removing waste you remove the opportunity for innovation and it's it's cut and dried if you if you still don't get it just think about it a few minutes longer and you'll see how true this statement is so i've said this from many stages and often in the audience there's kind of a cfo or an operations person or maybe even a an accountant or some sort of consultant around efficiencies and they just kind of bristle at this Um, and there are whole movements out there about getting your firm more efficient and you can through efficiencies you can get to a certain place profitability wise and you can get to a certain place based on other variables innovation wise and and, um, value creation wise for your client but the closer you get to the more efficient you become the more you give up on those other on those other fronts,
0: yeah. I, I mean I could not agree with this more. It ch- just changes the culture of what's important, and it's it's. I don't. I agree that I don't think I don't see how you can have both. In In fact, I'm reminded of an article I just read. It's not a new article, but I just read it on Harvard Business Review. Uh, essentially, that you know, strategic planning is an oxymoron. And it, it's the same kind of concept because planning is around cutting costs and gaining efficiencies and strategy is about value creation. How are we going to leap to the next mountain? First of all, where is the next mountaintop? Which one are we going to leap to and then figure out how we're going to get there? It's to- And he uses almost, almost, maybe I'm conflating the two, but I believe he uses almost identical terms about it it's it's going to be messy it's not going to be efficient and it that's the way it's supposed to be it's never not going to be risky the strategy part the value creation part the innovation part it's always going to be risky if it's not risky you're doing it wrong yeah so, uh, so and so you're,
1: you're describing entrepreneurship right you're describing what it means what it means to build a business and then at the same time when we look hone in zero in on it you're you're actually describing the the nature of your relationships with your clients. That's how it should be. It should be messy. It should have all of this room for figuring stuff out. It's organic. You can try to break it down and understand it to a certain extent, but the more you do, it's like dissecting a frog. Well, it's boring and ultimately the frog dies of it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So let's let's talk about – there's a big area in the book where you talk about the uh, sort of stages of a value conversation. You probably, I'm probably using the wrong terminology, but there's a four step process, four conversations. I don't think they're necessarily one after the other.
1: So I think of it this way. I think of any sale, in particular, a consultative B2B sale, you think of it as an arc of four conversations. So it, it's a little trick that actors use when they're playing Hamlet, which is over 4,000 words. It's like four hours to play it. And they they're told – you view the role of Hamlet as you break it down. It's just seven soliloquies. So you just learn those soliloquies and that's essentially how you you break the play down. And so I just chosen to view the sale as four conversations and the value conversation is the third in four conversations. And it sounds a little bit... Maybe it sounds a little complex, but I'll, I'll break it down for you a bit. So the idea is if if you see the, the the sale as four conversations and then all of a sudden you're dropped into a sale, a prospect reaches out to you, you reach out to them, you're introduced, whatever it is, or you find yourself about to present a proposal, you just stop and ask yourself, well, which of the four conversations is this? And then once you identify the conversation, then you ask, well, what is the objective of this conversation? Where am I trying to go in this conversation? And then, once you know the answer to that question, then you ask, well, wh- what was the framework that I'm supposed to be using? So, what conversation am I in? What's the objective of this conversation? What's the framework I use? And I describe them as four linear, discrete conversations, but they're not necessarily that way. It might all happen in one conversation, right? It might happen in six conversations. Some of the conversations might happen out of order. Um you might have one call or meeting where you get one and a half way through two conversation through one conversation half of the next one, and you pick it up in the next one after but it's really helpful to think of it as four discrete conversations so the first conversation is the probative conversation that's where you prove your expertise and you and you go in the mind of the client you flip and we actually call it the flip you flip from the vendor to the expert practitioner so. Ideally, the probative conversation happens without you present. It happens through your referrers or your agents of thought leadership. So a prospective client is reading something or saw a video you did or saw a speech or, um, or was referred by one of your best clients. They already see you as the expert. So you're allowed to take some sort of control in the sale. The second one is the qualifying conversation. It's where you, you vet the lead to determine if an opportunity exists and what the next steps are. So a lead is just a clue to a possible sale. Maybe somebody filled out a form on your website or somebody's active on your website or somebody reaches out to you or you call them. So it's the typical sales conversation. You're typically, when you're qualifying by vetting against fairly standard sales criteria of uh, need decision maker timeframe and budget. The third conversation is the value conversation. We'll come back to that. The fourth one is the closing conversation, which I I like to call it the transition conversation, because when you handle the first three conversations well, the closing conversation is really as uh, simple as putting three or four options in front of the client and and facilitating um, a choice. And it's it's this seamless transition. When the previous conversations haven't gone well – You haven't done what you were supposed to do, navigated to the place where you're supposed to navigate, then you're putting all of your chips on the closing conversation. So closing becomes this big, stressful thing, and it really should just be kind of a natural extension of the previous conversations. And my framework for the value conversation is essentially it's the same as, you know, all of the frameworks I've seen out there with one step added. So the standard three-step framework for a value conversation is um, mission uh, – so, uh, sorry, sorry, I got that wrong. Objectives, measures, value. I just came back from vacation. <laughs> um, objective, what are, the, what are the business objectives we're trying to uncover? I call it the de- desired future state. What is your desired future state? Mr. or Ms. Client. What's the place that you want us to help you get to? The second is measurement. How will we know when we've arrived there? What are the metrics? What will be true? What will be, what will we measure to know that this has happened? And then the third one is what's the value to you and the organization of doing this? And then the fourth step that I add is before you move from the um, value conversation to the closing conversation, is you offer pricing guidance. So you give them a sense you've gotten the information on them about their desired future state, around how you'll measure success, around the value that might be created for the organization and the individual, and then you say essentially, okay, now I'm gonna I'm gonna go away. I'm going to put some options together for you, and we'll reconvene, and I'll walk you through those options but i want you to know that i'm going those options are going to be in a range of x to y so you offer some pricing guidance and what, one of the reasons you offer pricing guidance is i say x to y it's really y to x because you want to anchor high i'm sure you've talked about this before but you want to anchor with the big number so y to x and i have some i have some frameworks for doing that um, and if there's a price objection, if there's something if – if you're talking so far beyond what the client is capable of kind of bringing to bear resource-wise, then you want to know now before you retreat and actually start thinking about what the solutions might be, um, the prices might be, and the solutions that you might deliver. So that's it. That's the four conversations. The value conversation is the third conversation in there, and I have uh, four
0: steps for, those, um, for that value conversation. Yeah. I love that last step that you said it's, you call it pricing guidance. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that, you know, like you said, that sort of objectives, metrics and value are it's standard, standard stuff. I've talked about it a lot before. The pricing guidance thing in the anchoring is really good. I've never done that, but I can easily see how to slot that into the process. It would be completely natural and it would, Per, perhaps increase my close rate or decrease the number of proposals I have to write. Uh, but those, those numbers are already, I'm pretty happy with where they are, but uh, it, it's probably a good technique for people who aren't particularly happy with those numbers. You know, how many, how many proposals are closing based on how many they're writing. And it's funny because I do a lot of the, a lot of the things that you, that you, that that does, I do elsewhere in the conversation. I'll do it earlier in the conversation. I'll, I'll, I'll hammer on what does a home run look like? And, and, how would that affect the organization? So if I do some back of the you know back of the napkin calculations, we're talking about an extra million dollars a year to the bottom line, something like that. Yeah. But I think that that's actually kind of hard to teach people. So like when I'm trying to teach people how to do this, that's pretty hard. So you, you really have to be thinking on your feet and asking all the right questions. It's kind of like a black belt move. But to just to just know that at the end of the conversation you're gonna you're just gonna like have a spot where you say, look, this is gonna be somewhere between you know hundred fifty thousand on the high end and probably like thirty five thousand on the low end. And like that's just so much easier. Yeah, followed by
1: pause because silence is, and I don't talk about this too much in the book, but if if you can um, uh, I think mastering silence is the single easiest most effective thing you can do to become a better salesperson. If you can deliver a price, or in this case, pricing guidance, and then say nothing, win the battle uh, to not speak, then because uh, whatever the client says after you deliver the price range, it's so valuable to you. There's so much information in there. Mm -hmm. Um, If they say, um, okay, that sounds fine. You think, oh, wow. All right, Um, (laughs) this is my price. All my prices just moved to the right. Uh They all I've just right. And if you get resistance even over the low number, then that might be a sign that you're trying to have a value conversation with somebody who just is not charged with future value creation, or it might be a price buyer, or they just don't see you as meaningfully different. Whatever the case is, so that pricing guidance we have that built into the step. One of the rules in the book. And it's broken down into four sections. There's principles where I think everybody should just learn and understand. And I've taken all the basic pr- value-based pricing and basic principles of economics that support pricing and deliver them in what I hope is a readable, enjoyable way. So you understand the principles. And then there are six rules, and these rules are things that you do all of the time. And then the largest section of the book is tips. So it's, it's actually guidance for specific situation and guidance for putting your proposals together. Um, getting into retainers, um, alternative pricing models, how do you come up with your high-priced options, your middle-priced options, your low-priced options, um, all kinds of stuff. And then there's the fourth tool section that I want people to use – actually write on when they're, when they're crafting their proposals. But one of the rules – I think it's the last one – is um, your client should always hear a price before they see a price. So it's from your point of view it's you you say a price before you show a price and that's that you don't find that guidance in the standard pricing uh literature because that's really something that comes out of the world of sales if there's a price objection you want to hear it before you go away and start crafting your proposal you just think of all of the times um Maybe you've been in this situation, but I know, I know hundreds of people who have been in this situation dozens of times in their lives. It's plagued some salespeople their entire careers where they get into a closing meeting. They pull out the deck. They go pay- through pages, pages, pages. They get to the last slide, the last page. It's the price. There hasn't been a meaningful price conversation or value conversation. The client looks at the price and says, oh, we don't have that. We can't afford that. And then the salesperson's just dejected. Well, and th- that's the moment where you say, well, how much do you have? <laughs> <laughs> and you're willing to do it for whatever because you're so overinvested in the sale. So before you get to that situation, before you like, do any meaningful amount of work to dive in to start to create the solutions and understand what the price would be, get some pricing guidance first. If the client can't afford you – you know, you've got this target of X, which is somewhere around 10% of your total income for the year that you want each client to be spending at or above that amount. And if they can't afford that, you want to find that out early. You want to find that out early in the qualifying conversation. That's the second of our four conversations It's the first one where humans are actually speaking to each other. Um, Remember the first conversation, the probative conversation, ideally it's head through your thought leadership or your referrers. So, in that first human to human conversation, it's your job to uncover that, you know, any kind of budget information. And then then you go through the value conversation and you deliver what you. And so the client might say, Well, I've got $100,000. And you might be thinking, "Ah, You're going to need a million. But you go through the value conversation and you uncover the fact that you expect to create $5 million a year in recurring value from this project. Then you know, you you could say, well, and if you, so you let's just say on the high end, you say I'm going to come back with some, a range of ways that we can help you. On the high end, probably in the one to two million mark, like twenty to thirty percent of the annual value that we would hope to create. On the low end, uh, if you really need me to come in with something at a hundred thousand dollars, I'll I'll tell you what we can do for a hundred thousand dollars. But I think this is a engagement of hundreds of thousands of dollars or more
0: absolutely so so let's that's a perfect segue into the well i guess the closing conversation so in the way that you do your proposals because i I thought my proposals were short you know maybe maybe five pages but you talk about running the sort of closing conversation with like a single sheet with three options on it like it's a you know salesforce (laughs) sales page or something so let's talk about that a little bit. So moving into the, and also, I'm sure you'll bring it up, but just in case, the the prices that you're throwing out there in your guidance, you don't know what you're going to do yet.
1: Oh, you, you haven't even thought about solutions. And that's one of the things that um, it's really hard when you're moving from hourly based billing, time and materials, inputs, whatever you want to call it, you're it's really hard to get your head around because you go into every conversation already thinking about what you might do. And you really want to learn to move off of the solution and just think about the value, focus on the client, focus on the value you might create for the client. And then from there, you set prices and then, or at least price range ranges. And then you start thinking about, well, what could we do in these ranges? So yeah, you think about solutions later, and really, it's really that simple. It really is. That's one of the rules is unpaid written proposals do not exceed one page.
0: Yeah, so let, let's go into this, because I I love this, because I hate writing proposals. So the, the, the Hands rest, the up
1: who loves writing proposals. It's a promise <laughs> that we've been making to our clients for years. We will get you out of the proposal writing business, and in exchange, you take all of that free time, and you devote it to writing thought leadership or creating other forms of thought leadership. That's the idea that the written, the unpaid written proposal needs to exist. Is just it's one of the biggest fallacies. And I'm sure people are listening. to This thinking, whoa, well, nice theory, Blair, but that's just not ever going to there. I guarantee you, there are hundreds of firms out there who uh, limit unpaid written proposals to one page or even no pages, just the pr- because um, I've said for years, the proposal is the words that come out of your mouth. Here's what we're going to do. Here's what we propose to do. Here's how long it would take here's how much it would cost if you have if you're in agreement in principle we'll write up the details in the contract for your signature that's how it should work and that changed for me when I started to read Ron Baker's work on pricing and and others and saw the importance of uh, offering options always offer options and that's the second rule so you're you have a requirement to put um sorry you have a requirement to put multiple options in front of the client and so when I saw the value of that i realized okay well we're going to have to write proposal is going to have to go on paper um but no more than one page and as i say in the in the introduction to the book i was uh my first experience with this i was an ignoramus when it came to value based pricing and i was i was almost you know, i was ma- getting close to a decade into my consulting career and i was working with a very well known firm uh, design development firm. It's uh, really set the tone for a lot of what other firms do today. I was working with them, and I asked to see their proposals, and they were one page with three columns. And I think the one the one that I saw was column one was two hundred and fifty grand, column two was four hundred, column three was six or six fifty. And I couldn't believe what I was looking at. And the and uh, the owner said, "Yeah, we we always do this." And I said, "Well, the clients don't ask like where where did you get these numbers?" No, <laughs>
0: <laughs> I get students all the time that that people do ask them that question, and I just say, tell them, you know, the answer is this past experience, and they just you just cannot let them try to dissect the number. It's, it's just, it just turns into disaster.
1: Yeah. If you're really value based, if you're pricing based on value, then, and they ask, where do the numbers come from? Well, it's, it's based on an assessment of the value that we might create for you. So you're in the value conversation, which is the hardest part of all of this is having a good value conversation. So one of the rules is master the value conversation, to, but to master it, you have to have a framework and you have to have lots of practice. And if you can master it, man, you will go to the next level. So if you're pricing based on value, you would justify it not by anything other than saying, I, I think that's compensation we would be comfortable taking based on the value that we would create for you with this option. And so let's say you, dis- you decide that it's a million dollars a year of recurring value. If, if you do all of these things well, uh, you offer pricing guidance and you've got to do some thinking on your feet. But you come back and whatever options you come back with, you are selling essentially the same thing. You are selling to the client their desired future state that you uncovered in the qualifying conversation and you confirmed again in the value conversation. So what's the place you want to get to? Discounted for uncertainty. So your most expensive option has the smallest uncertainty discount and your least expensive option has the greatest uncertainty discount. But you are, if you're selling based on value, you are selling the same thing. You are selling to the client their desired future state discounted for uncertainty.
0: Yeah, let's drill into that. I, I That's farther down my list to talk about, but now's a great time. So a couple of things, I know from talking to perhaps thousands of developers that this is, another, this is just another one of those things that's a tough mind shift to make when you're used to selling your hands, selling your inputs, because all they think about is, well, how long is it gonna take me? And and by the same extension or by extension, they think that their price should be the same for absolutely every client. So it's like, well, that wouldn't be fair for me to price myself differently from client to client because they're only thinking about the work that they do. And and the thing that they're not thinking about, which is the only thing that matters to the client really is the results, You know, the outcome that they're gonna receive, the business outcome. So one of the things I talk about a lot is, You know, when people are like, oh, geez, I just can't, you know, I can't bring myself to put this, you know, we will be working together on a a proposal that they're getting ready to present and I'll be, I'll give them a number for the top option. And they're just, they're getting sticker shock. They're like, I can't even, I could not deliver this with a straight face (laughs) because it's only going to take me this long to do it. And I'm like, yeah, but you're forgetting about risk. You're forgetting about stress. You're forgetting about capacity. You're, You're forgetting about urgency. You're forgetting about all these other things that are super important to the client. Uh, But so, okay. So like, let's, so you, you hammer hard on the uncertainty one. So let's drill into that. Maybe you could, you already started talking about it, but could you kind of define that and then maybe help people a little bit with the black magic that you would use to kind of try to calculate that?
1: Yeah. So there's a chapter in the book on selling risk and sometimes, so uncertainty is Uh, risk or risk mitigation. And sometimes in the sale, it makes sense to have that be this very kind of overt on the table discussion. So you might say, I've got three options here for you, Mr. Client, three different ways that you can hire us. Priced high to low, I've got kind of the low risk option to you is the most expensive one. And then I've got the the higher risk, it's the it's the more affordable one. It's the cheaper one. I wouldn't say more affordable. It's the cheaper one, but it's you're taking on more risk. And then the one in the middle is kind of a more balancing of the of the risk between you and me. You phrase it that way to the client, right? And just think when you're constructing your options for your proposal, just think of it. Well, what's the what's the most that we could do to take the most risk away from the client? And the and the um, risk free pricing. The ultimate risk-free pricing would be contingency-based pricing, where it's you don't pay until we deliver on the desired future state. We hit, we deliver the objectives, we hit the measurements that we've identified, and we create the value that we said we would help you to create. So that's an example of that's the low that's that's no risk to the client, you take all the risk. So if you chose to price an engagement that way, and a lot of people are cringing, thinking, well, we'd never do that. I don't know. <clears throat> never say never. I'm not trying to make the case that developers should price this way, but I am trying to make the case that you should be open-minded about all of these engagements when you're pricing them. And you're, you you might decide this thing's a sure thing on your end for whatever reason, and I want to make a whole bunch of money and I want to make all the client's risk go away. And I know they're willing to, to pay to make that risk go away. You might consider taking an engagement like that from time to time. I don't think it should be a habit. I don't think you should have more than one client like that, generally speaking, at any one time. But everybody's risk profile is different. So that's one way to think about the. That's the lowest risk option to the client, the highest
0: risk to you
1: therefore the highest
0: price to you yeah and it should be very high price
1: yeah very high way beyond if you price it out hourly Way multiples it's really about the has nothing to do with your input zero Mm -hmm. at the other end of the spectrum if the highest risk offering you have to the client which is the lowest risk option to you is to sell time Mm -hmm. right so sometimes i i favor putting Uh, Selling time where you strip out all other forms of value and uh, put it in front of the client. When you, uh, you're what Reed Holden, author of Pricing with Confidence and Negotiating with Backbone, what he would call negotiating with a poker player. So, we all know what a value buyer is. A value buyer is somebody who who really is interested in the return on the investment. We know what a price buyer is. A price buyer is somebody who just wants the lowest price and they'll do whatever they can and they'll forego all kinds of other forms of value just to get the lowest price. A poker player, according to Holden, is a value buyer disguised as a price buyer. So when you suspect that's the case, you might put this, the client might be Bluffing might be just playing poker with you, saying, No, all I have is fifty thousand dollars. And you might say, Okay, well here's option number one, the expensive option, and it's two hundred thousand dollars. And he reacts, I told you only I only have fifty. Yeah, yeah, I'm getting to that. Here's option number two, <laughs> it's eighty-five thousand dollars. So it looks a lot more affordable next to the first option. an option here's what we can do for fifty thousand dollars. I can sell you one block of time, X number of hours of one developer. And it's fifty thousand dollars well so am i going to am I going to get to project completion i've no idea i 'm just right. selling you a block of time it's paid in advance, so you you communicate all of the things that the client doesn't get in that option by including them in the others. One would be terms, right so there's no terms. One might be project management, the involvement of a project manager, uh, access to principles, some sort of reporting knowledge transfer you name it there's just all these other things you would do in the more expensive options you just make sure that they do not sh- they show up in the expensive options and they do not show up in the cheap option and so you put it forward and you say to the client, well here's what we can do for fifty thousand it's the it's the risk it's the riskiest option to you because. Frankly, I don't think we can get it all done in fifty thousand.
0: Right, exactly. Fifty
1: thousand dollars worth of hours.
0: Right. Mm-hmm.
1: I think it's more like I think you know at the least you should take the eighty five thousand dollars option.
0: Yep. Yeah, and that that actually might be a good segue into driving people to option two. Yeah,
1: which is you know which is usually your goal. So anchor high is one of the rules. You lead with the high price, and the science behind anchoring is. The first p- piece of information that you get on a subject matter skews your thinking about it as you make adjustments through kind of a second way of thinking. You never adjust fully to, the, to compensate for the first piece of information. So you make sure the first number they hear is a high price. It also makes the second price, the, the middle price, seem far more palatable. Right, so you anchor high. That's one of the rules. Deliver the high price first. If you think of the low price as maybe where the client thought the budget was going to be, the high price is the anchor. Most of the time, clients will choose the middle one. It's called ex- extremeness avoidance. They'd stay away from the extremes, and they'd choose the safer, middle, comfortable option. So you want that comfortable middle option to the client to be. And general, I'm making generalizations here, but m- more than they a- anticipated spending. But it's less than the really high anchor. And you have to remember, the anchor is not there to be bought. It will get purchased from time to time. It's there to make the second option, the
0: middle option where you want them to buy, look more palatable. Excellent. So we are getting to time. This Man, this went by fast. Uh, yeah. So let me, let's just... Can we just do one last question? Could you describe a little bit? Because I do not do this. I know a lot of people that do this. I do not do it. uh, But I do believe it's a good idea. Just more out of uh, sort of optimize my sales process to the point where I don't feel the need to do this. But the presenting the proposal live. So I just I write it up and I send it. And if they want to buy, they buy. If they don't, I don't care. So. You know, perhaps I am in a sort of luxury position there, where I can just not care that much. But now, let's say that I did care, and I really wanted to maximize my odds of closing a deal. And someone has their their you know three options on one piece of paper, as you described. How would you actually execute that conversation in the real world? You know, would you go there? Is this over the phone? Uh, is it a is it a screen share? What do you talk about? How long is the meeting? Could you just give me a, give me and and the listeners a picture? of what that looks like.
1: Yeah, it really doesn't matter the the uh, format of the meeting, whether it's a face-to-face meeting, a web meeting, or a phone call. As long as if it's a phone call, somebody's got access to email, if they're on the phone, unless they're on a landline phone, if those exist anymore, um, you can send the one-page proposal over once everybody is convened. So pr- proposals, we used to think of them as, and most people still do, as these big rambling things that you stay up all night creating, you kind of lob them in over the fence via email, and then you sit and wait back to hear a response. And that's that's like your clients putting you in the proposal writing business. And how many firms out there, whether they're creative firms or they're developer shops, how many firms out there just, you know, crank out, take on all of this extra work that's largely unnecessary to Create these proposals, then they lob them over the fence, and now they have no power. They're just sitting there waiting. (laughs) So it's, um, it really, you should view it this way I will create you, uh, you, the salesperson, I will create a proposal for you, Mr. Client. In exchange, you will assemble all of the people who need to be, all of the, what we would call on the sales side, decision makers. You would assemble all of the key decision makers on your team for a brief phone call, web meeting, face-to-face meeting, whatever it is, for us to review it. And I'll share it with you once we all get together. That's it that's the trade. Like there's no inherent reason why the client should expect that they can put you to work creating a proposal and then disappear on you. If you, if you just stop and think about it for a couple of minutes, you realize that's absurd. You wouldn't let other people treat you this way. You're you're putting together a proposal, in exchange for them getting together to consider the proposal and then agree at the end of the meeting what the appropriate next steps are. And you've got everybody, you say, all right. So you recap the value conversation. These are the objectives you're trying to hit, what we call the desired future state. These are the measurements that we talked about that we'll use to know that we've succeeded. This is the value we hope to create for the organization. I said to you, I would come back with prices in this range of X to Y. I have three options here. I want to start with, uh, actually, it's Y to X. I want to start with Y, the most expensive one. And you might say, we first began by asking ourselves, what would we do if money was no object? What would we do? What's the most we can do to take away as much uncertainty from the outcome as possible?
0: That's great.
1: Here's the solution we came up with, and here's the price. And then you can go to the middle one, or you can go to... i I really feel it out from situation to situation, but you can go to the cheap one and say at the low end of the spectrum, here's the you said you wanted us to come with a proposal that was at the seventy five thousand dollar mark. So we ask ourselves what could we do for seventy five thousand We're not huge fans of this one. We think it's you take on a whole bunch of risk there, but maybe if if that's a trade you're willing to make, then you know maybe that's the option for you in the middle, we've got something that's somewhere in between and it's one hundred and twenty five thousand or whatever it is. So that's just an example of how you would frame that conversation.
0: I absolutely love the, if money were no object line, you know, it's just so good. Okay. So we, we could probably talk all day. So let's wrap it up there. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Blair. Where can people find out more about you?
1: Yeah. Thanks, Jonathan. My pleasure to be here. So I'm at winwithoutpitching.com and they can buy the book, uh, Pricing Creativity, A Guide to Profit Beyond the Billable Hour at pricingcreativity.com. It's available only on the website. And then after you buy it I, and and read it, I'd like you to go back to that page and see how many of the principles in the book
0: were used in the pricing of the book. Awesome. And when is it available for purchase? January 10th. January 10th, ladies and gentlemen, pricingcreativity.com. Thanks again, Blair.
1: Thanks, Jonathan. My pleasure. Bye-bye.
0: The next time a client asks you what your hourly rate is, I want you to tell them that you don't have one. To learn what to say next, please go to valuepricingbootcamp.com to take my free five-day Value Pricing Bootcamp email course. That domain, again, is valuepricingbootcamp.com.